I want to draw your attention to two passages in the New Testament this evening. First of all, from the book of Acts, chapter 7. You'll find that on page uh, 1165, Acts 7. This is uh, the conclusion of Stephen's speech, which hastened the conclusion of his life, because when the Jews heard him, they took up stones to kill him. So I want to read the verses 51 to 53 of Acts 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. And then if you turn to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the first one, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that's on page 1,258, and just a few verses from there as well. One Thessalonians five nineteen, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. That's the reading of God's word. The Holy Spirit is the gift of the ascended Christ that He poured out on His church at Pentecost some 2,000 years ago. And over the past number of months, we've been looking at the gift that the Holy Spirit is and the blessings that He showers upon us. It's the Holy Spirit who is the Creator Spirit who creates the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the giver of the Scriptures because He inspired men to write the Word of God. He's the one who gives new life to sinners as he regenerates them by his power so that they embrace the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. He's the spirit of holiness who works in us, conforming us to the image of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit is a most precious gift of the ascended Savior to His church. It's, it's a reminder that just because the Lord Jesus is not on earth with His people, He has not forgotten them at all. In fact, He has come to them by the Holy Spirit. It is through the Spirit that we receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. But if the Spirit has been poured out on the church, as we read, or even as uh, Peter says, quoting Joel in Acts uh, 2, if the Spirit has been poured out upon all flesh, and if this is the age of the Spirit, then that does raise a question for us. It might perhaps perplex you. If this is the age of the Spirit, then why are there not more Christians? Why do not 
more people believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. If the Spirit is present at work, drawing attention to the Lord Jesus and changing people's lives, why does His work sometimes seem so ineffective? And not only do we ask the question, why are there not more Christians? But we ask this question, why are Christians not more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? I mean, if we understand that the Spirit is given to us, dwells in us, He's the Spirit of holiness, then why are we not better than we are? That's the question that I want to struggle with this evening from a couple of passages in the Word of God. Why does the Spirit's work seem so ineffective? But before I get to that, I want to state unequivocally what we confess and what the Bible teaches regarding the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity. He was equal in power and glory with the Father and the Son. He is as God as God the Father is and as God the Son is. As we confess in the Athanasian Creed, He is eternal as they are. He, like them, is uncreated. He's not begotten. Only the Son is begotten. But He does proceed from the Father and the Son and does that eternally. The Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an it. It is about Him that we speak. And because the Holy Spirit is God, that means that He is omnipotent, all-powerful, that none of His power can ever be thwarted, that all that the Holy Spirit intends to do, He does. He never begins a project and then cancels it because He faces opposition that He cannot overcome. All of His designs he will carry out. No one can stay his hand or tell him what he ought to do. He is the sovereign, omnipotent, Holy Spirit of God. And what that means is that his work in the life of individual believers is also unstoppable. That if God has chosen someone from the, before the creation of the world, if in love He has set His love upon them and has selected them from a mass of humanity to be the recipients of His grace, to share fellowship and communion with the triune God, then that will happen because God the Father is sovereign. And if the Lord Jesus Christ has taken upon Himself the sins of the elect, and has gone to the cross and taken upon himself the judgment that the holy judge of all the earth has meted upon Christ for the sins of his people, then that sacrifice is absolutely effective because Jesus is the God-man and his purposes and intentions can never be thwarted. Christ can never die for someone, take upon himself their sins, only for that person then to spend an eternity in hell. It cannot happen. He is God. And similarly, when we speak about the work of the Holy Spirit, if God has chosen someone in His electing love, if Christ has died for them in His atoning love, 
then the Spirit will also work in the hearts of those who are chosen and those whom the Christ has died for in order to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will do all that needs to be done to do so. He will take out the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. He will call to life those who are spiritually dead. He will open their ears so that they can hear the voice of the Good Shepherd saying, Come, follow me. He will take the blindness of their eyes away so that they are given a vision of the grandeur of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't ask permission to do this. He doesn't ask for your approval. He will do his sovereign work in those whom he chooses to work because he is God. And it will happen. All those whom the Father has chosen all those for whom the Son has died, will come to faith in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit because the Spirit's work in those places cannot be stopped. It will inevitably, inexorably, undoubtedly come to pass. He is the sovereign Spirit. He is God. And though all hell break loose against His plans, And though everything within us resists his working in our lives, the Spirit will bring to life all those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world and given to the Son for salvation. There's no doubt about this at all. It is true without any hesitation. And yet, when you look in the Bible it does appear that the Holy Spirit can be resisted. In the infinite wisdom of God, sometimes the work of the Holy Spirit can be quenched or repelled or rejected. That is, from our perspective, sometimes the Spirit's work is ineffective in the lives of those in whom He works. And I want to show you that from a couple of passages this evening, both for our instruction, but also for our correction and admonition and our encouragement. The first passage I want to turn to is from the book of Acts, chapter 7. There we have recounted for us the first and last recorded sermon of Stephen. You remember that Stephen was one of the seven deacons chosen by the church in Jerusalem, and we read about Stephen that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, that he was full of grace and of power, and he exercised a powerful ministry in Jerusalem. In fact, so powerful was his ministry that he excited the ire and the wrath of some Jews, and they accused him falsely of blasphemy against God and against Moses, accusing him of saying things that he shouldn't, to their opinion, shouldn't have said. And so they seize him, and then they bring him up before the religious leaders, before the Sanhedrin, call false witnesses against him, just think about the parallels to our Lord's life, and then Stephen gives his defense. 
And in his defense, he recounts the history of the people of God, all the way from when the God of glory appeared to Abram to the building of the temple of Jerusalem by King Solomon. And he tells them throughout that God had been enormously kind to his people, that his people hadn't been kind to the Lord. They often rejected and rebelled against them, but God had been kind to them. He had been faithful to them. And he recounts how the Lord brought the people out of Egypt, how he led them through the wilderness, how he blessed them with the temple as an emblem of his grace that was going to come in Jesus Christ. But Stephen doesn't just give a history lesson here. No good sermon just recounts truths. He brings it to a close. He applies it to the hearts of his hearers. He challenges them, and he says to them that God has been kind to you, and you have returned his kindness with rejection. He says to them in verse 51 that you guys are stiff-necked people. That is, you will not bend the neck. You are haughty and proud with outstretched neck. You will not bend the neck and bow your head under the sovereignty of God. You will not turn to the Lord and repent of your sins. You are stiff-necked people. Christ has come to you. Christ, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets and uh, the one that the Old Testament Scriptures have pointed to. Christ has come, and, and what do you do? You clamor for his death. You rejected the Son of God. You stiff-necked people, he says. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. They would have been circumcised in the flesh. At least the males would have been circumcised, probably even on the eighth day. So scrupulous were the Jews in those days for following the commandments of God. But their hearts were uncircumcised and their ears. That is, they had an external religion without any inward reality matching with it. Because, of course, the circumcision didn't do anything spiritually. It was just an external sign pointing to an inward reality that was needed. And and their hearts were uncircumcised. Their, their, Their flesh, their spiritual flesh was not removed so that their hearts would be soft and tender and receptive to the Word of God. And, and their ears were still blocked. The, the blockage of the ears was not circumcised, was not cut away so that they could hear the voice of God in the Scriptures. You're stiff-necked. You're uncircumcised. He says, you're just like your fathers, the Jews. What did the fathers do? Well, every prophet that came, your fathers would persecute. And then when the prophets announced that there was one coming, a Messiah, who would bring deliverance and redemption to the people of God, well, you would kill them. But he says, Stephen says to these Jews, you have one-upped your fathers. You're as stiff-necked as they are, as uncircumcised as they are. But you have not just killed the prophets who have announced Jesus coming. You have killed Jesus himself, the righteous one you have now betrayed and murdered. He says in summation, you know what you folks have done? You have resisted the Holy Spirit. Because, of course, it was the Holy Spirit who was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. 
It was the Holy Spirit who guided the Israelites through the wilderness. And every time Israel grumbled against the Lord or refused to submit to Him, they, they were resisting the Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who, who inspired the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah to speak so wonderfully about the coming Jesus, the Lord our righteousness. It was the Holy Spirit of God who, who came upon Jesus at His baptism in the Jordan so that what Stephen is saying, when you have heard the Word of God in the Scriptures, inspired by the Spirit of God, and when you have rejected the ministry of Jesus Christ as He was anointed by the Spirit and instead pressed for His death, you have done nothing less than resisted the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Spirit's work to bring people to Christ, and you refuse to be brought to Jesus Christ. You hate Him so that you reject the Word of God. You repudiate the Son of God, which in short means you have resisted the Spirit of God. And I want you to notice that Stephen is saying this to the church. This is not an evangelistic sermon that he's delivering. He's not talking to the world, to pagans who know nothing of God's dealing. These are the children of Abram, these religious leaders in the Sanhedrin. These are the ones to whom God gave the promises. These are the ones whom God led out of Egypt and through the wilderness and planted in the promised land. These are the ones that He took out of Babylon and brought back to the land of promise. These are members of the church. And He says to them, you have resisted the Spirit of God. You might know what uh, the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 6. He says, it's possible for people to share in the Holy Spirit. That is, it's possible to be within the covenant community of God, to experience some of the blessings of the Spirit, and even some work of the Spirit. You might be convicted or feel remorse for your sin. You have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and at times you might have thought, wow, that Lord Jesus seems so attractive. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says. He says, you might have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, but if you do not come to the Lord Jesus Christ and by faith take a hold of Him and cling to Him, you won't be like the Jews who crucified Christ because that's already done physically. But the writer to the Hebrews says, it will be like crucifying the Son of God all over again. It's the church that put the Lord Jesus to death. It's the church that resisted the Holy Spirit. And so the warning comes to all of us this evening that we must be careful not to do this mistake. That being a member of the church of Christ does not save. It's possible to be a member and to resist the Spirit of God. And so I urge you to examine yourselves 
so that you would not come under the same condemnation of those in Jesus' day who called for the death of the Lord of glory. So that's one way you can resist the Spirit. But there's another way that you can resist the Spirit, and this is what the Apostle Paul speaks about in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says there in verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Do not resist the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. There, the Spirit is referred to as light, because the word that he uses for quench is is the word that was used in reference to extinguishing any type of light, either a light or a fire. And uh, the Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonian Christians, and of course to us as well, do not quench the Spirit. The Spirit is light. And I think it's helpful to see the Spirit as light here in context with the Word of God, because this is what Paul is speaking about. He says, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. See, the Holy Spirit speaks. He speaks in the Word of God. And so, He is a lamp unto our feet and a light upon our path because by the Word of God, the Spirit addresses our lives. And He does two things in our lives. First of all, He illuminates what the will of God is for us. And so as we read the Scriptures, inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit, we are instructed how we ought to live, the kinds of evil that we ought to abstain, the good that we should pursue. And so the Word of God teaches us how, how we are to engage with one another as brothers and sisters, with kindness and love and forbearance and rebuking, admonishing one another, encouraging one another, spurring one another on to love and good works. It tells us how we ought to live as wives in submission to our husband, as husbands in loving, self-denying love for our wives. It tells us as children how we are to honor our parents, to submit to them, to cherish them, to, to bear with their weaknesses and frailties. Tells us as parents how we're to train our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The, the Scriptures give us, or perhaps best said, the Holy Spirit in the Scripture gives us all kinds of instruction for our day-to-day lives so that we might order our lives in a way that pleases God and is conformed to the image of His beloved Son. So that's the first thing the Spirit as light does. He enlightens us. He illuminates the Word of God for us. But then He also illuminates to us how we have fallen short of the Word of God. I remember children many, many, many years ago, I used to receive a monthly magazine. I think it was called highlights. And uh, there were a couple of memorable things. There was goofus and gallants. Uh, Goofus was always doing the wrong things, and so you shouldn't be a goofus. You should be like gallant who always did the right thing. But if I remember correctly, there was also this find the difference game. You children probably play it. It's when you have two pictures that are very similar to each other, but there are some differences. And so there's the, the main picture, and then there's a second one, and, and you have to look at the second one and see where the second one disagrees with the first one. So sometimes, a, you know, a chair in the first picture will have, uh, you know, four uh, rungs 
in the back. They're not called rungs, but four, four up and down things in the back of the chair. And the one on the, the other side will have maybe three. And, ah, there's a difference. Or, or maybe the lampshade is a different shape or things of that, that nature. Well, this is what the Spirit does in our lives. He, he, he finds the difference and tells us what those differences are. And so the, the Spirit says, now, now here's how you ought to live. But here is how you are living. The Spirit says in the Word that you're to love one another. And so your sarcasm is not loving. It's not the way that it ought to be. The Spirit says that husbands are to love their wives, and, and your self-centeredness is different to what the Word of God says. That's what the Spirit does. He convicts us. He's in called. In, in fact, Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, he, he will be the Spirit of conviction, and the Spirit convicts us. He points out to us the differences between our lives and the Word of God, between how we live and how we ought to live. And it's not always comfortable. But it's always a good thing because when we're at our best, we want nothing more than to offer the totality of our lives in service to God. Who else would you want to serve other than the Lord Jesus Christ? And isn't it our desire to please Him in every way? So the Spirit convicts us of our sins and shows us where we fall short. As the writer to the Hebrews again says, the Spirit, through the Word of God, Hebrews 4, makes the Word living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's what the Spirit does. He exposes us. He says, uh, here's the difference. Now, I'm sure that everyone who names the name of Christ has had that experience of knowing what you ought to be doing and being convicted that you aren't doing what you should be doing. Now, how do you respond to that? Well, there are basically two ways in which you can respond. The first way is to outright reject it to resist the Spirit, or to use the language of Paul, to quench the Spirit, to, to douse the Spirit's light, to say, I don't want to hear or see what you're saying. And you can do that really blatantly and arrogantly and say, I know, but I don't care. I'm going to do my own thing. I know I shouldn't be doing this sin. I know it's contrary to what the Spirit wants in the Word, but I don't care. I'm going to go my own way. And you do it with a high hand, and you do it with arrogance. And, and it's true, isn't it, that sometimes we do that as Christians? Can you imagine doing that? But it's true that we do that, don't we? I think that's uh, the kind of attitude that David had when he sinned with Bathsheba. He knew that he ought not to have done it, but he plowed ahead anyway. I think that's why he... He prays in Psalm 51, don't take your spirit from me. 
because I have abused, I've resisted the Spirit, I've, I've told the Spirit to shut up and to mind his own business. Oh, don't take your Spirit from me. So you can do that just really outrightly and blatantly and arrogantly. But you can also resist the Spirit with a little more sophistication. So he convicts you of sin. And uh, you do enough just to soothe your conscience. You know you should do more, but, but if I just do this, I, I think I'll be okay. I, I imagine you, you children have had that at times. Your mother and father have told you to go to bed, so you go to bed. You're obeying them. But in bed, you're reading when you ought to be sleeping. You see, the Spirit tells you you ought to be sleeping and not reading. But you say to yourself, well, at least I'm in bed. I'm not completely rejecting the Word of God. Or perhaps your parents tell you to tell the truth. and So you do tell them the truth, but you just don't tell them the whole truth. But, but you are telling the truth, and, and you do feel good about that. Um, you know the Spirit wants you to tell the whole truth, but, but you don't want to tell the whole truth because that will get you into trouble, and so you just do enough so that you feel good. Your conscience is quieted. Well, children, adults do that too. Do it all the time. We're convicted. For instance, we're convicted that we ought not to be gossiping and slandering other people. And yet we do. We find ourselves doing it. And even sometimes as we do it, we hear the Spirit saying, no, it's not right. This is a brother for whom the Lord Jesus has died. You're to speak well. You're to speak encouraging words. You're not to tear one another down, but you're to build one another up. And yet instead of stopping and turning to the person that you've gossiped to and said, you know, we ought not to be doing this. I confess my sin. Please forgive me. We instead say, but he really is a good guy. And we feel that just doing that somehow takes away the sting of the conviction. It's not thoroughgoing repentance, but, but it's enough to make us feel good about ourselves, to salve our conscience and to quiet the conviction. But it's still resisting the Spirit. It still is quenching His light. And it's still displeasing to the Lord. So that's how you can do it. You can resist either outrightly and blatantly or with more sophistication, not giving yourself wholeheartedly to obedience. Or when the Spirit of God lights your life and says, here's the difference, You could submit to him and yield to him and obey him and follow him as he leads you to the cross of the Lord Jesus where you confess your sins and receive the superabounding forgiveness that God offers in Jesus Christ. That is, instead of quenching the Spirit, you can fan the Spirit's work into flame in your life so that your life more and more shines for the glory of God as you live as children of light in the midst of this world of darkness. So that's the second way. The first way is to resist the Spirit 
so that you don't believe in Jesus Christ and take Him as your treasure and Savior. The second way is what Christians do, true Christians, who do not allow the Spirit to have full fruition and effectiveness in your life because you resist Him, you hold Him back, you withstand His work in your life. The one, if it continues, is eternally ruinous. If you resist the Spirit and ultimately continually resisting the Spirit and rejecting His Son, Jesus Christ, that has eternal ramifications for you. You will be under the judgment of God for all eternity. That's tragic. But if as a believer you resist the Spirit, quenching Him, that will have ramifications as well. It will weaken your spiritual life. It will rob you of assurance. It will make you ineffective as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and a poor testimony to the world around you. It will rob you of the joy and delight of being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you do not want to stop the communications of the Spirit. He is a gift of God to His church for our blessing, our joy, and our happiness. So do not resist or quench the Spirit of God. In 2004, NASA sent a lunar modular thing up to uh, Mars. It wasn't lunar, it was to Mars uh, to do research. Uh, It was called Spirit. And it reached Mars successfully, but after 18 days stopped sending communications to Earth. That is, for all intents and purposes, it was useless. They did actually get that fixed, and it continued to work until 2010. But the point is, if you receive no communication from the Spirit of God, if He never convicts you, if He never points you to Jesus Christ, if He just leaves you to yourself, that would be an absolute disaster. It would be an eternal disaster. We do well to pray with David, take not your Holy Spirit from me, and instead fan into flame the light of the Spirit within our hearts. Embrace Him, submit to Him, treasure Him, so that we might know every spiritual blessing that is ours in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we've heard some solemn words this evening, and we thank you that you have spoken them to us, and we pray that we would receive them with grace, that we would uh, take them up in our hearts, that we would listen, that we would examine our own lives by your Spirit, and that we would live our lives faithfully to you, that we would treasure the Lord Jesus Christ, take a hold of him by faith, that we would order our lives in faithfulness, hating sin, abstaining from all forms of evil, and offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. We pray, our God, for more of your Spirit. We pray that we would not uh, quench his communications to us, but that we might be ever receptive so that uh, we might know more and more of the joy of our salvation and live our lives more fully 
for your praise. Forgive us for all our sins, we pray, through Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Amen. Let's uh, 